Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Endgame Part 2. This is the second last episode in the War of Independence series. If you haven't listened to Endgame Part 1, it's worth checking that out before diving into today's podcast. That show ended in the summer of 1921, when the British government faced the dilemma of whether to impose martial law across the 26 southern and western counties of Ireland and thereby dramatically escalate the war or, alternatively, start negotiating with the Irish Republican movement. Now, this question, as we will see, was answered by King George V in a momentous royal visit to Belfast in June 1921. Therefore, to start today's podcast and fully appreciate the implications and consequences of the British government's decision about whether to escalate the war or start peace talks, we need to set the scene to the backdrop of George V's visit to Belfast and look at how people in that city were enduring some of the worst violence in its long and turbulent past. At the start of the last podcast, I thanked the supporters of the show, the people who deserve the most credit for this series. But I forgot to announce that their exclusive podcast, available only for supporters on Acast Plus and Patreon, will be out soon. In that show, I'll be talking to Dr. Regina Donlan about her research on the role returning emigrants played in the Irish War of Independence. It's an overlooked but fascinating topic. If you're not listening on Acast Plus or Patreon, but you'd like to hear that show and get the finale of the War of Independence series early, you can become a supporter on Acast Plus and Patreon really easily by clicking on the links in the show notes below. Finally, don't forget to check out the hand-painted pewter models commissioned to mark the War of Independence. We only have a limited number available at the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Sound on today's episode was by Jason Looney. Additional research is from Sam McGrath and additional narrations are by Thrace Murray and Aidan Crow. In June 1921, the 10th Royal Hussars became the latest British Army regiment to be shipped to Ireland. While increasing numbers of troops had been arriving in from Britain throughout 1921, moving the Hussars in particular was difficult. 
Given they were a cavalry regiment, the logistics of moving horses and equipment, not to mention they would have stables and ample fodder on arrival, always meant meticulous planning before they left England. However, difficult as moving the Hussars was, their mission to Ireland in the summer of 1921 was one of extreme importance. They were being sent to Belfast, where they were to provide protection to King George V when he visited the city on June the 22nd. On reaching Belfast in advance of the king, the Hussars found the city in a strange mixture of tension and jubilation. A royal visit to Belfast was a rarity. Only two reigning monarchs had set foot in the city since 1690, and to mark the occasion, Belfast was accordingly festooned with decorations. A journalist recorded the festive mood in the city. Straight decorations were on a wonderful lavish scale and the whole route was a riot of colour. The scene at Donegal Quay and on the lagging stretching away to the lock was equally magnificent. The vessels lying in anchor were decorated and the giant cranes at the shipyards showed a fluttering mass of bunting. However, the arrival of the Hussars underscored the tension that coexisted with this festive mood. While many in Belfast would welcome George V, a significant minority were nonplussed about the King's imminent visit. An estimated 11,000 soldiers had been drafted into Belfast where they would bulk up police and unionist paramilitary units in a huge security operation to protect the monarch. Nothing was being left to chance. All pubs in the city were to close for the duration of the visit. Owners of buildings in the city centre were ordered to seal off all access points to rooftops. Only those with special written permits from the Commissioner of the Police were allowed on roofs on the day itself, in fear they would be used by a sniper. While royal visits to Ireland had always been surrounded by major security operations, the preparations in Belfast in 1921 exceeded anything previously undertaken. However, the reality was George V was going to set foot in a city at war and his arrival was not going to ease these tensions. Indeed, it's worth taking a few minutes now to bring the story of the war in Belfast up to June 1921 to appreciate the volatile situation on the ground in the city. As we saw in earlier episodes, the northeast of Ireland had remained largely peaceful until July 1920, when, at the urging of unionist politicians, mobs had unleashed a wave of violent attacks on Catholics and left-wing Protestants in Belfast. This resulted in thousands of Catholics and what were termed rotten prods being driven from the shipyards and other major employers, while hundreds of families were burned from their homes. In the following months, this developed into what became known as the Belfast Pogrom. This took the form of widespread violence between largely Unionist Protestant communities on the one side and Catholic Nationalist communities on the other. The nature of this conflict was different to the War of Independence elsewhere, with civilians accounting for the vast majority of the death toll. While paramilitary forces were involved on both sides, 85% of all fatalities in Belfast were civilians, compared to roughly 30% of fatalities in Cork and Tipperary. While there's little doubt that the pogrom had been triggered by Unionist political leaders, this doesn't mean that Unionist Protestant communities didn't suffer. 
They did in considerable numbers. Indeed, the sectarian violence of unionist mobs had been matched by an equal response from the nationalist ancient order of Hibernians, who had a long history of sectarianism, and to a lesser extent the IRA, who were increasingly drawn into the conflict in later 1920. In total, however, nationalists accounted for the vast majority of the fatalities. A recent study by historian Kieran Glennon has calculated that while 25% of the population of the city were nationalists, they accounted for 56% of the fatalities. Now, while this northern theatre of the War of Independence has often been dismissed as merely another resurgence of the sectarian violence that had flared in Belfast regularly over the previous century, this doesn't fully explain the wider political forces at work at the time. By 1920, Ulster Unionists had come to the view that a permanent partition of Ireland would best serve their interests. The British government were already going to bring in a Home Rule Bill, the Government of Ireland Act, so Unionists lobbied for this to include provisions to create a Northern Parliament which would rule over the six northeastern counties. Now, these counties were specifically chosen because Unionists would be the dominant and unchallenged rulers of the region. The violence and pogroms that I talked about should be viewed very much as part of this process, an effective attempt to seize control in the region. So while politicians lobbied in Westminster to create a political framework where conservative unionists would dominate, mobs on the streets drove nationalists, Catholics and left-wing Protestants from the world of work and in many cases from their homes. While this war had flowed and ebbed through 1921, the imminent arrival of King George V did not calm this situation. Ten days before he was due in Belfast, three people had been killed in disturbances, while the following evening, a 12-year-old Presbyterian, William Fraser, was shot dead by a sniper. A Catholic who went to his aid was also killed. Now, the arrival of George V would not ease or curb this violence, nor was it intended that it would. He was coming to officially open the Belfast Parliament, which had been formed under the Government of Ireland Act, the same Parliament which would ultimately give Unionists control of the region. As mentioned in the last episode, the election for this Parliament had taken place on May 24th, 1921, and as was expected, Unionist candidates had taken 40 of the 52 seats. The outlook for those critical of the Unionist project was bleak. Indeed, James Craig, the man who was about to become Prime Minister, would later describe the Parliament being opened as a Protestant government for a Protestant people. What he neglected to say was that it was a Conservative and Unionist Protestant government. Left-wing Protestants, like all Catholics and Nationalists, had no place in his worldview. It was no surprise, therefore, that the Catholic Primate of Ireland, Cardinal Logue, refused to attend the opening of the Parliament. When the day of the King's visit, June the 22nd, finally arrived, large numbers of Unionists began to make their way into the city centre as soon as the curfew was lifted at 5am. By 10 in the morning, huge numbers were filling the streets along the route the King was expected to take. Meanwhile, the 10th Royal Hussars had saddled up and made their way from their barracks where they were garrisoned to the city centre to meet the monarch. Finally, at 11am, the Royal Yacht made its appearance, coming up the Lagan River from Belfast Lock, only weighing anchor when they had reached the city centre. This allowed the King to disembark at Donegal Quay, where the Hussars, who had arrived in advance, were waiting. 
Despite the huge security operation, no chances were taken and the time George V appeared in public was kept to a minimum. After stepping ashore, little time was wasted before the royal cortege made its way through the city streets, lined with police, soldiers and large crowds. It was unquestionably a sight to behold, however. The king's carriage was hauled by four white horses, especially sent from England, while his cortege was surrounded by the royal hussars. On arrival at City Hall, the king greeted the assembled dignitaries before making a short address formally opening the parliament. George V had made countless speeches at formal occasions, and truth be told, they were often dull affairs, given the king, as constitutional monarch, could not express any personal political opinions. They had to be pre-approved by the British government. However, many wondered what he would say in Belfast. He could hardly visit Ireland and not mention the wider war. The major issue of the day, to an extent, was not really the opening of the Belfast Parliament. That was merely a formality. The key issue was what would happen in the rest of Ireland. As we saw in the last episode, the Dublin Parliament, created under the Government of Ireland Act, was clearly not going to meet, given it was dominated by Republicans who were boycotting the institution. Now, under the terms of the Government of Ireland Act, if something was not done, martial law would be extended across the rest of Ireland, meaning an escalation in the conflict. George V would surely at least flag what the government's intentions were. When he did actually address the Parliament, his speech proved to be one of the most significant addresses by any British monarch ever made in Ireland. His opening remarks were not very memorable. However, in the second half of what was a short speech, he turned to people who were not actually present in the Parliament. He appeared to be addressing the Republican leadership in Dublin when he said, The eyes of the whole empire are on Ireland today. That empire in which so many nations and races have come together in spite of ancient feuds, and in which new nations have come to birth within the lifetime of the youngest in this hall. I am emboldened by that thought to look beyond the sorrow and the anxiety which have clouded of late my vision of Irish affairs. I speak from a full heart when I pray that my coming to Ireland today may prove to be the first step towards an end of strife amongst her people, whatever their race or creed. In that hope, I appeal to all Irishmen to pause, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and to forget, and to join in making for the land which they love a new era of peace, contentment and goodwill. This was clearly a peace offering of sorts. And significantly, everyone knew George V, as a constitutional monarch, could not make political speeches such as this, without the consent of government. Indeed, his words had come directly from the British cabinet. They had made their decision about what to do in Ireland. They were shying away from the extension of martial law across the south of the country. By using the King's speech in Belfast to convey this message, they hoped it would carry more weight than it would if it came from a senior politician. 
The Prime Minister, Lloyd George, for example, had a long track record of going back on his word in relation to Ireland, so few would trust a promise coming from his lips. But the British cabinet's intent was clear. They were signalling that they were open to dialogue with the Republican movement. The reaction to this speech was largely positive. In Dublin, the Freeman's Journal were cautiously enthusiastic. King George's speech in Belfast was one that invited hope among those who were longing for an honourable Irish peace. His Majesty admits that his vision with regard to Ireland has been clouded in the past. The sentiments that he expresses and the appeal that he makes prove that he is emerging from the fog. They were quick to point out the difficulties ahead when leaders on both sides were tasked with the details of establishing a truce and peace talks. If the seed that King George would scatter is to take root and ripen to a harvest, there must be a truce. A truce is called for by the king. This is essential in order that his appeal should be listened to and a fair field be given to the peacemakers to realise those desires of the king, which are equally the desires of the Irish nation. While the reaction may have been somewhat guarded, if positive, in Dublin, people in Britain were far more enthused. The Times of London reported on the return of the King and Queen to London on June the 23rd. Rarely has there been from a London crowd cheering, charged with such deep meaning as on this homecoming of the King and Queen, who did not hope that he might be witnessing the eve of peace in Ireland. However, while this optimism opened potential for talks, many understandably remained dubious about whether the British government would engage in a meaningful way. They could not, for example, demand, like they had in December 1920, that the IRA hand over its weapons before a truce or talks. Such conditions were what one might expect in a surrender, and what was on the cards in the summer of 1921 was potential talks in an ongoing war. Indeed, getting from the King's speech in Belfast to a negotiating table was very tricky. The IRA, for example, did not, and arguably could not even, stop their military operations on the vague promise of talks from George V. Strange as it might sound, continuing attacks until they had firm commitments from the British cabinet was central to any peace initiative. If IRA brigades stopped attacks, this could lead the British government to believe that they were desperate for peace, which in turn could lead them to an extremely tough negotiating position. This highlighted how difficult the entire process was because attacks could become a major stumbling block if the British public or politicians demanded revenge instead of pursuing peace initiatives. Indeed, the first major challenge took place a few days after George V had left Belfast when the IRA launched what was one of their most spectacular operations in the entire war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. After providing a bodyguard for George V in Belfast, the 10th Royal Hussars remained in the city for two days. The king himself was only in Belfast for a few hours. As we heard, moving this unit anywhere was a major logistical undertaking. However, three troop trains with the necessary cattle wagons to carry the horses arrived in Belfast and the regiment prepared to leave the city on the morning of June the 24th. Just before 9am, the last of the three trains, carrying 117 soldiers and 104 horses, including the four Windsor Greys that had pulled the King's carriage through Belfast, left Great Victoria Station, heading for Dublin. However, the IRA General Headquarters, through their extensive contacts among railway workers, had received detailed plans of these movements, and they planned to attack the troop trains at various points between Belfast and Dublin. While the Dublin Brigade were planning an assault on one of the trains outside the capital, a far more sophisticated and daring operation was being planned in Armagh, where IRA volunteers, led by Frank Aiken, were planning to derail the last of the three trains carrying the Hussars. After carefully choosing a location, out of oil, outside Newry, the operation began on the morning of the 24th, when IRA volunteers seized four railway workers who were working on the track close to where they planned their attack. They then set about cutting all telegraph and telephone wires in the locality to isolate the area. Meanwhile, two scouts had taken up positions on a nearby mountain from where they would see the train approaching. Once they spotted the troop train, they would light fires to signal to Frank Aiken and the others to set the plan in motion. The idea was simple. They were not actually going to attack the train, but instead they would derail it by removing a section of the track. While it has been claimed that they used a landmine on the track, there's no evidence such a device was utilised. John Grant, one of the volunteers present, explained, The plan adopted was to remove the bolts and the fish plates from the outer rail, and when the train due for derailment arrived near the spot selected, the outside rail was to be removed. At the point where they had planned to remove the rail track, The line ran along an embankment which was 20 to 30 feet above the surrounding ground, so the downward momentum of the derailed train would drag other carriages in its wake. At 10.15, the scouts positioned on the nearby mountain lit a beacon fire to signal the train was approaching. John Grant continues the story. We got the signal that the train was approaching and we removed a length of rail, as described in the above plans. When we had done this, we could hear the train approaching and we cleared off. Frank Aiken remembered looking back. The first carriage and the engine rolled to the sleepers and stopped. The remainder of the train, except for the last four wagons, crashed down the embankment and was smashed to pieces. As it happened, the carriages carrying the soldiers remained on the track, avoiding a major loss of life. However, four people, three soldiers and a civilian railway worker, were killed. The loss of horses was enormous. Somewhere between 50 and 80 animals were either killed or put down directly after the derailment. 
In what was becoming an increasingly common phenomenon, news cameras and photographs went to the scene and captured the devastation. I have a link to one of the videos in the show notes below. This was still a time when the written word could convey such carnage better than grainy photographs or flickering camera reels. The Belfast newsletter described the scene. The wreckage was piled high both on the railway and the embankment. Many of the wagons were absolutely reduced to matchwood. So violent had been the crash. Between 14 and 15 wagons, it is estimated, were broken and the line was torn for a considerable distance. While the clear-up in Armagh would take days, the other troop transports, which had been ahead of this train, continued down the line towards the capital, where the Dublin Brigade of the IRA were waiting north of the city. Two bombs were thrown at a fast-moving train, causing widespread damage. However, the IRA volunteers had misidentified the target and attacked a civilian train, injuring several innocent people. Nevertheless, the Attavoyle train derailment was certainly a great propaganda coup for the IRA. Given the wider political climate, a major question emerged as to how the British government would react in London. Just two days earlier, the king had seemed to hold out the possibility of peace talks. Would this attack, and pardon the pun, derail this initiative? For example, the British government had cited a surge in IRA operations in late 1920 as one of the reasons why the Clune peace talks had failed. The reaction to the Adavoil ambush in the summer of 1921 was different, however. It, if anything, revealed that the British government had developed a very different understanding of the war in recent weeks and months. The realisation that it would have taken years had led them to take a more serious approach to peace talks. Indeed, on the same day as the Adavoil attack, Lloyd George invited Eamon de Valera, along with Irish Unionist leaders, to talks in London. The newspaper... The Times of London, often regarded as the most influential publication among the political elite in England, covered the story of Ad of Oil on its main news page, which was page 10, but it made no reference to the potential peace talks being jeopardised or how it might impact them. It was clear the mood was changing. Indeed, it was in Dublin where a somewhat bizarre incident in the war seemed to pose one of the gravest threats to the changing dynamics. On June the 22nd, around the same time as the King had been making his speech in Belfast, the leader of the Irish Republican movement, Eamon de Valera, had been arrested by Crown forces in the city. Then within hours, Alfred Cope, the Assistant Undersecretary, one of the leading British civil servants in Ireland, arrived in the Portobello barracks in person to secure de Valera's release. This bewildered Republicans. Initially, de Valera was suspicious he suspected the arrest and release may have been a charade designed to undermine his authority and leadership and perhaps even to make his fellow Republicans question his loyalty. It wasn't. His arrest had taken everyone, including British leaders, by surprise. It hadn't been sanctioned by anyone. Unbeknownst to de Valera, orders had in fact been issued months earlier that he was not to be arrested as the authorities viewed him as a potentially moderating influence. He was released on the 23rd of June and events began to move rapidly after this. As we heard, Lloyd George extended his offer of talks in London to de Valera and Irish Unionist leaders. This began what became a dance of sorts where all sides tried to create the impression they were not going to give ground. 
de Valera somewhat predictably refused to attend talks with Irish unionist leaders in London. He came up with a counter-offer suggesting that he meet the leaders of northern and southern unionism in Dublin and that they would come up with a common position which they could then take to London. James Craig, the leader of the emerging state of Northern Ireland, rebuffed any notion that he would be represented by an Irish Republican or share in any such initiative. As we saw in earlier episodes, Northern Unionists were, by this point, looking to an entirely separate future from the rest of Ireland. The position of Southern Unionists was very different, however. They had essentially been cut adrift by their political allies, Unionists in Ulster, when they had pursued partition. For Southern Unionists, they looked to a future where they were a tiny minority in the 26 counties in the south and west of Ireland. Fearing change of one kind or another was inevitable. Some leading Southern Unionists, including Lord Middleton, accepted de Valera's offer of talks in Dublin. They were hoping that they could influence any potential talks and get the rights of Southern Unionists enshrined in whatever agreement might emerge. At these talks in Dublin between Irish Republican leaders and the leaders of Southern Unionism, Eamon de Valera made the salient point that there was no hope more substantial talks between the British authorities and Irish Republicans could succeed unless the war stopped. Irish Unionists present agreed with this and Lord Middleton took the suggestion of a truce to Lloyd George in London. Now it's worth bearing in mind that at this point the war was continuing right through these days. On July the 6th, for example, while these talks were ongoing, four IRA volunteers were killed in Armagh, as well as an RIC constable in Nimerick. Meanwhile, a 75-year-old farmer was killed by Crown forces after he refused to stop when ordered to. However, the momentum was largely in one direction. The Republican leaders Owen McNeill, Arthur Griffith and Desmond Fitzgerald were all released from prison, while the IRA in turn released Lord Bandon, a unionist who they had captured weeks earlier. It was on July the 8th that Lloyd George agreed in principle to a truce as a preliminary to talks in London. Now the details of how this truce would actually function had to be worked out in Ireland, so nothing changed and the war ground on. Following Lloyd George's approval, however, talks did take place in Dublin between the Commander-in-Chief of the Crown Forces, General Neville McCready, and Republican representatives Eamon Duggan and Robert Barton. At these talks, terms were agreed for a truce that would come into effect at midday on July the 11th, 1921. Now, the agreement was very narrow. No political aspects of the conflict were addressed. The truce was essentially a conditional ceasefire so talks could really begin. There was no IRA surrender of weapons, no British withdrawal from Ireland and nothing had been said about the thousands of IRA prisoners in British jails except that trials and executions would stop. While it was agreed the IRA for their part would stop raids and attacks, the Crown forces agreed that they would not arrest or harass IRA volunteers and would keep military displays and parades to a minimum. When the truth was announced, the reaction was one of jubilation in the general public. It had been nearly a decade since Ireland had known peace. For many, they had been at war in some way, shape or form since the beginning of the First World War back in August 1914. While the truce offered the potential end to the wider war, on a very basic level, and perhaps one we might be able to relate to today, a curfew that had been in place across the island was going to be lifted. 
The Press Association reported on the situation in Dublin when the truce came into effect on July the 11th at 12 noon. Dublin has undergone many ordeals in the past 10 years, during which labour and political upheavals have been frequent. But it has seldom enjoyed a greater feeling of relief than that experienced at noon Monday, when a general political truce was observed. The long and painful strain under which every citizen was labouring under was at last broken, and the people breathed freely once more. The machines of war were laid aside and peace reigned supreme. The effect on Dublin citizens was almost magical. A general feeling of relief was everywhere noticeable. Precisely at noon, the sirens on the ships in the Liffey were sounded and a din reminiscent of New Year's Eve was maintained for a few minutes while the military guard at the Custom House stood at ease. After a year and a half of imprisonment from curfew for daily periods from 9 to 6.30, Dublin was released on Monday night. Every street was so thronged that it might have seemed that none spent the time indoors. All tram cars were crowded, motor cars hummed through the city and motor bicycles and cycles dodged their way through the crowds. When darkness approached, all trams lit up and travelled to and fro with their human freight. The youth of both sexes paraded the streets singing and there were bands playing. Three years have gone since bands have marshalled in Dublin. Following this, on July the 14th, Eamon de Valera travelled to London to begin what were preliminary discussions with Lloyd George. These were very broad. The intention was only to lay out the basis for more detailed negotiations. But to say these did not go well was an understatement. De Valera met with Roy George three times over the course of a week, after which the British Prime Minister made an offer. This was that Ireland would be granted what was called Dominion status, the same position South Africa or Canada enjoyed at the time. An Irish government would control its finances, its judicial system, internal affairs like education, but, and crucially, it would firmly remain within the empire and subject to the British Crown. De Valera rejected this offer and left London on July the 21st. Back in Dublin, major divisions now began to emerge in the Republican leadership. Hardliners, like the Minister for Defence, Cahill Brewer, was opposed to any negotiation and favoured a return to war. He was opposed by Michael Collins, who favoured talks. By the end of August, all discussion and even formal communication with the British Cabinet had stalled. Lloyd George offered talks, but de Valera and the Irish cabinet continued to reject them until the terms of such negotiations were more favourable. The key issue at stake for Republican leaders was how the negotiations would be framed. This was crucial. If they accepted Lloyd George's idea of Dominion status, they could not hope to get anything better and would probably get something worse. De Valera wanted the talks to take place as discussions between two independent countries, but this was something the British dismissed out of hand. In what reflected his hardening personal position, de Valera announced in the autumn of 1921 that if talks did begin in London, he now would not travel and take part in them. What precisely he was doing at this point has been the subject of intense debate ever since. Many have speculated that de Valera was playing politics and after meeting Lloyd George, he knew the British 
would never recognize an Irish Republic. So he simply was refusing to put himself in a room where what might be considered poor terms might have to be accepted. De Valera, for his part, said it would be better that he was not present at the start of the talks and that it would be an ace up the Irish delegation's sleeve if he was to arrive over at the 11th hour. Overall, it has to be said it was a really bizarre move for de Valera to rule himself out, given he was at the time the most skilled Irish negotiator given his experiences in the USA. Nevertheless, through early September 1921, discussion around negotiating strategy or tactics seemed academic. The two sides could not even agree on a basis for talks, let alone discuss their differences. The impasse was finally broken when it was agreed that the talks could take place to, and I quote, ascertain how the Association of Ireland and the community of nations known as the British Empire may be best reconciled with Irish national aspirations. It was suitably vague that both sides could take what they wanted from these words. While the Republican leadership had agreed to talks, they now had to decide who exactly they would send to London to do the negotiating. De Valera, as we have heard, ruled himself out, as did Cahill Brua, although sending the latter would probably have been counterproductive given his opposition to the entire process. While Michael Collins was named as a delegate, he continued to try and get Eamon de Valera to travel as well. Tensions between these two men had been rising since de Valera had returned from the USA in December 1920, and Collins now feared that de Valera was setting him up to take the fall when the Irish delegation returned with a less than ideal outcome from the talks. While de Valera's exact motivations will always remain a matter for debate, he refused to travel to London and eventually an Irish delegation was agreed upon. This was officially led by Arthur Griffith, although the real power behind this throne was Michael Collins. The other negotiators were Robert Barton, George Garvin Duffy and Eamon Duggan. They also brought a large team of advisers and experts. One of the most controversial of these was Erskine Childers. Born to an Irish mother and an English father, he had been very much part of the British elite, attending the prestigious Haileybury Private School before going up to Cambridge. He was an established author writing the bestseller The Riddle of the Sands and had worked as a legal expert in the House of Commons before fighting in the Boer War and the First World War. However, his long-held ancestral attachment to Ireland had developed into political sympathy and activism after the 1916 Rising, and in 1921 he was a valuable advisor to the Irish delegation, given his experience. However, his presence was deeply resented by the British, who viewed him as a traitor. While the final plans were being put into place for the delegation's departure, crucially, the truce was to a large extent holding across the south and west of Ireland. Violence had declined, and while it did not completely stop, there were no major IRA operations. An uneasy peace existed in many towns, as British garrisons remained in place and IRA volunteers who had been on the run for months started to reappear. The situation in the northern six counties, ruled by the Belfast Parliament, however, was very different. The pogroms continued and the truce terms, which were supposed to apply to the entire island, had been largely ignored in the northeast. The IRA commander in Belfast, Roger McCorley, said, The truce in Belfast lasted six hours. The pogroms lasted two years. Indeed, since the opening of the Belfast Parliament, violence in the city had only worsened. Sixteen people were killed in the seven days after the truce came into effect. July and August 
were some of the most violent months on record in Belfast. Roger McCorley again described the situation after the truce came into effect. Open warfare between ourselves and the special constables continued right through the period of the truce. It was increasingly clear that no matter what was decided in London, the war would continue in the North East. Another potential matter for concern was the reaction of the IRA brigades across the country to the announcement of the truce. While they largely abided by it, many volunteers had been taken by surprise when it was announced and were left confused about what was happening. When the Irish delegation left for London on October the 8th, several of the negotiating team were largely unknown figures. Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith were household names, but the other three weren't. This naturally led many volunteers to wonder what exactly was happening. To make matters worse, many volunteers also resented the fact that while they had done the fighting, they hadn't even been consulted about the truce or peace talks. This underscored the fact that no one really knew what the bottom line for the Irish Republican negotiators going to London was. At what point would they walk away from the talks? In what was an ill omen, the truth of the matter was, if you travelled around Ireland in 1921, you would have heard numerous answers to such a question, given people had very different views on the talks. Many IRA volunteers and common Amman activists would have said that they had been fighting for the Republic that had been declared in 1916 and the negotiating position was relatively straightforward, they would accept nothing less than a complete and total independence from Britain. However, the Republican movement included Sinn Féin, which had grown rapidly in recent years and was a very broad-based church by 1921. Unsurprisingly, there were many who would have been happy with something less than independence. Perhaps the most common position in the public at large was a desire for peace. The general confusion, though, between these various views across Irish society framed the talks which finally got underway in London in mid-October. In the final episode of the series, we will travel to London, where the Irish delegation found themselves facing the most experienced British politicians of the day and some of the most famous figures of the 20th century. David Lloyd George, Winston Churchill, Lord Birkenhead, Harmer Greenwood and Austin Chamberlain, to name but a few. While that's all ahead of us, don't forget to check out the limited edition figures at the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. There's links in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 